Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, no matter where you're joining us from. Thanks for coming into the Dark Zone Adventure Racing Podcast. At this point in an episode, you're usually getting a blurb from the upcoming episode, but this is not your typical episode. This is a flash edition of the Dark Zone. Craig Cook of AR Live Coverage, a longtime race analyst, and Brent Fiedlin of Rootstock Racing, a longtime racer and race director, joined the Dark Zone to speak with us about the upcoming AR World Series World Championship this weekend in Paraguay. Um, it was very gracious of them to come on, and we appreciate the hour that they gave us. Uh, please note that Craig's uh, internet breaks up a little bit during the interview. Not so much that we have to edit it out, but you have to kind of listen hard, and it passes pretty quickly, and we appreciate the internet working so well from around the world. We do live in amazing times. We're going to come on following this episode after the race and talk about our predictions, how accurate they were and how inaccurate they were. We appreciate you being here and enjoying this episode of The Dark Zone. Sit back and relax. Enjoy this episode and enjoy the upcoming race. Go to arworldseries.com for all the live tracking and team analysis. All the best. Thanks for being a listener and enjoy The Dark Zone. Welcome to The Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatins. In adventure racing lingo, a dark zone is a time when due to darkness or safety, teams are paused on the course before continuing with the race. During that time, stories are exchanged, friendships are kindled, spirits are restored, and teams have a chance to prepare for the next challenge. We hope that you make good use of this dark zone. We're glad that you're here. Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Dark Zone Adventure Racing Podcast. This is a special Flash episode of the Dark Zone. We're joined tonight by Craig Cook, all the way from New Zealand, coming across the internets, uh, a beautiful foreign country. And we're joined by Brent Friedland of Rootstock Racing, all the way from Philadelphia, another beautiful foreign country for those of you who live in America. <laughs> um, we are delighted uh, to have them join us tonight. Um, it is uh, September 12th, 2022. We're on the cusp of the Adventure Racing World Championships being held in Paraguay. We're very fortunate because uh, Craig, um, a very, very popular AR live coverage, knows the races ins and outs and has covered races before. Uh, Brent, an international racer himself, uh, follows the sport closely. So our goal tonight is to talk a bit about um, the Adventure Racing World Championships, the teams we have there, the course, and kind of set everybody up for a great listen. Um, Craig, thanks again for joining us. Going to come to you first. You've had a chance to see the schematic. You've had a chance to, to cover races in Paraguay before. What are your early thoughts on the course? Tell us what you think. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. I think uh, the crux of it is actually very early in the race, which is a little bit unusual. Um, I mean, it starts with that really big um, uh, trek and then onto a equally long uh, paddle leg. So it's going to be interesting. Navigation is probably going to be um, the key factor in Paraguay. They generally set a course that, you know, there's 31 checkpoints on the first leg. Um, so that's definitely a, a key thing. And getting through that first leg quickly and efficiently will be, will be key, particularly for the top teams. Uh, anyone who loses time on that first leg is just about going to be out of the race, I think, um, straight off. But the, the first thing I'd probably like to uh, comment on the races that I've covered there in the past, um, navigation is really tricky. Um, it's quite a flat country. I mean, the highest point's only 850 metres. Um, so quite often, you know, the teams don't have a lot of um, points to reference off. 
the there was one uh, episode of the race where they were in eight eight foot high grass, and so the teams were literally you know just pushing their way through the grass, couldn't see anything at all. So the, it's kind of a little bit like not much different to night navigation. Um, we happen to use your compass and such things, but when you're in the grass, I guess there's always a temptation to stop and try and look around, but because they couldn't see any other features around as well, they sort of, navigation was tricky and slow through those sections. Um, and then there was another time where they were in a valley, there was several rock features either side of the small type valley um, that, where the checkpoints were and, and teams lost eight to 12 hours. And that, the only time uh, Columbia, Viterade lost um, there was when they spend a whole night going around in circles. Um, so it will look quite simple on the maps and such things, but on the ground it will be a different story and, and it's the vegetation and, and terrain that will make it tricky. And to, and to give some context for our listeners out there, the race schematic has been put out. Um, you're looking at a opening trek that's 122 kilometres um, with almost 4,800 feet of metres, 4,800 metres of gain, um, in a, in a, in a country with 800, 800 meter mountains, like I had to find a lot of gain there along that it's a 12 o'clock start, right? So you've been awake for a while when you start the race, you're going into the darkness, obviously, and there's going to be rope sections on the course. And so right away to your, to your point, Craig, teams that struggle in that first section probably aren't going to come back very quickly from that. I, I think in the in the pre-race press release, they talked about that possibly being a 24-hour section just to start the race off. I think, yeah, I think it's 32. Yeah, it is 32. And it's um yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be very technical, I think. And yeah, any teams that make a mistake on that first one before getting on that long paddle, uh if they're behind, they'll struggle to catch up. So, so what's your so Brent as a, as a course designer and a, and a and a racer who's done international races and raced around the world, what's your take on on that kind of a course design from the very start? The fact that you you're right into the deep end right away. The, the what what kind of team do you think will will benefit from that? Yeah, I mean, I I think that it. Uh... I mean, first of all, we have to remember this is the world championship, right? So, you know, this is the race for the best of the best. And, you know, I, I don't think any of the teams that are there competing for the podium or, you know, you know, even the top 10, right? Teams that are, are looking to be top five to top 10. Um, I don't think they're going to be surprised by that. They, they've all competed in races like that before, but it certainly is an interesting way to start a race, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, that that first stage, a couple of other thoughts I had about it is, you know, if the course designers uh, estimates are relatively relatively accurate and they're saying the fastest time is going to be approximately a day and a half, right? You know, even the other top teams in the world, uh, you know, it could be 40 hours for the fifth fastest team. You know, it probably won't be that long, but, um, you know, there could be a, a pretty sizable gap just for, for the top teams. So um, it's going to be a really interesting stage to watch. Um, I also think the the placement of those rope sections will be really interesting to to take a closer look at. We don't have enough information to really analyze that in depth, but you know, ropes are always um, you know they're always a bit tricky to to have ropes that that really work effectively in a race. And when you have them pretty early in the race, you have a, a much higher potential for backlogs, which means that you know the top two or three teams getting through there can probably move pretty efficiently and keep on going. 
but you know, uh, you could be the fourth place team or the fifth place team and be stuck there for an extra hour and lose an hour on the leader. So that's going to be fascinating to watch for sure. And, and to that point with the backlog and a rope section later in the race, it acts as a de facto dark zone for people to catch a bit of rest, right? We've, we've all been in races where whether it be a zip line, we had that one time at a longest day race or whether it be uh, on the ropes, it forces you to rest, but clearly yeah, if, if a team goes full guns and gets there quick and makes its way through, they're going to get a jump on everybody else. Um, we go there. Craig, in your experience in the races that you've covered in the past, have you seen this kind of a monster trekking like to open up a race in Paraguay or other world championships you've covered? Yeah, actually, I was just thinking about that. The last two world champs have both had started with really big treks. Um, last year in Spain, I think it was about 110 or 120 Ks as well. Um and also Reunion Island started with a really big trek. I think it was 88 Ks or 90 Ks, something like that. And but with that one in particular, they there was a dark zone on First River section. And I think Avaya in particular sort of paid a little bit cagey to stay in touch with the leaders. Uh, but they kind of figured that they'd probably get dark zone or get dark zoned anyway. So there was no point going out too hard to start with, where this one is very different. There's no dark zone on the water. And getting on that water first will definitely give any strong paddlers uh, an edge and they'll be able to push, it, push that advantage on where, um, yeah, I'd say like last year as, as well was quite interesting. They they trekked and then there was a, a mountain bike leg and then onto a long paddle also. Um, Swedish Armed Forces, SAF, they, they strategically played that quite well and they actually slept on the river. Um, so that... When they got to the end of the section, a lot of teams were all already very tired and they were very slow out of the next transition where SAF came in. They'd already slept and they were straight out and chased Estonia and, and obviously chased them down at the end and, and beat them. So strategy is going to be really critical and I think they will start that uh, kayak leg probably on at evening on the second day, which is going to be quite interesting. So I, I'm, I'm picking all teams will sleep on that second night during the kayak leg. Gotcha. And the fact that there's no dark zone on that kayak leg speaks to obviously the, the, the type of water they're putting them into in those kayaks. Um, yeah. And to your point, sleep is everything, right? And this kind of a race and coming off a, a day and a half, possibly in that first section, they're going to have to get some sleep in themselves eventually. Yeah, it's, it looks like very flat water. That I mean, it drops 50 metres over the course of 90 uh, kilometres. So uh, I think it's – and I'm, I'm picking they're going to be on sit-on-top type of kayaks as well, which are going to be pretty hard work. Um, I remember Costa Rica in 2013, they, there was a, a similar kayak – it was only about 60 k's towards the end of the race and I don't think too many people enjoyed that one too much and so this is going to be hard work on that um, kayak leg and will really suit the strong paddlers like Ben racing um, in particular they the yeah it's it's going to be critical because once I get off that water it really just becomes a bike and a hike race uh, which yeah will suit some teams pretty well we, we, we've mentioned uh, SAF, Swedish Armed Forces, and we've mentioned Avaya. Um, Brent, your take on the depth of the field for the World Championships. What do you think about the, the teams that are showing up to race? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, my honest opinion, having watched, you know, many of these races over the years, is that it's not quite as deep of a field 
from the uh, kind of teams outside of South America. Um, I always, you know, like to qualify these conversations by pointing out that, you know, there there's dozens and dozens of teams of athletes racing in this event from all over South America. Most of them are not teams I'm particularly familiar with or individual racers that I'm familiar with. And, you know, there's usually, you know, at least one or two teams that um, kind of are a bit of a surprise, but um, you know, and there certainly are, there are a half a dozen or so kind of more known um, South American teams that I think, you know, we, we should be looking at very closely. Um, but yeah, the, the depth of the field is, is not quite as, um, quite as strong as I, I think we normally see. I think there's a, a dearth of teams from Australia and New Zealand and not quite as many teams from Europe. Um, you know, there's one or two teams and groups of athletes from North America that uh, often are there that are not there this year. So, um, you know, South Africa is, uh, I think, has one team in the event. Um, and often have two or three. So um, I think it will be very competitive up top, but um, you know, it may be a, a smaller field to watch for those of us looking uh, you know, at the podium race. And for the, for the early um, publication of the team list, uh, 53 teams are, are coming. And, and to your point, um, a very, very heavy, we see a lot, a lot of Argentina, a lot of Paraguay. We see um, Uruguay here, um, a smattering of Switzerland, Spain, Sweden, Brazil, um, uh, USA. We have teams coming in from USA and Canada. But you're right for a for a world championship. There's usually a deeper field of teams who we know well. Um, but I am curious, Craig, as to your thoughts about the ability of those those the the big teams, the Estonias and the SAF, to to wrap their heads around the the, the Paraguay, the terrain and the navigation and things like that. You mentioned navigation a bit earlier. Do you think that the South American teams will have a natural advantage just by virtue of that's where they race all the time? Or do you think the skill set of those teams will balance it out? Yeah, Paraguay is probably a little bit different to some of the other South American countries. So it will favor some, but not everybody. Um, I think I agree with Brent. The depth of the field is probably not as good this year. You haven't got teams like Nature X, um, Nordic Island, uh, Thought Sports from Australia. And the raid, obviously, because they're the organisers. So, so if you put those teams in there, then it would be very, very interesting and intriguing racing. However, having said that, I mean, for me, there's three teams that stand out outside of Avea, um, and that's definitely SAF, Swedish Armed Forces, uh, Brazil Multisport, and Estonia. And I mean, they are probably the form three teams in the last 12 months, following on from last year's world champs. Obviously, Estonia currently world number ones, SAF are the world champions. Um, Brazil Multisport beat Estonia at Panama, um, and this is literally almost home ground for them because they have all raced Paraguay uh, multiple times. Nick Gracie has won it every but one year, I think. So, so they... All three, you can make a strong case for any three of those teams being able to win this race. Um, and I think there will be a good battle with those teams and along with the Bayer, obviously. And then, you know, there will be, as always, a chase pack, um, which will include, you know, another five, six teams. You think we're, we're, we're dancing on the idea that Avea showing up and being that they're the combination Michael Jordan, Serena Williams of the adventure racing world, that it's, it's, it's their race to win and everybody else is fighting for the second spot? Or do we think that the layoff, um, they're not getting any younger, 
they're traveling a distance. Like what, what's your take on that? I mean, what's never ever counted via out, right? Nathan Favre is yeah. going to shake his fist at this podcast and win by about 30 hours. Um, Brent, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, look, people in the United States are going to hate me for saying it, but as a new England Patriots fan, right. You never counted them out while they had the the gang together until it was over. And, and now it's over for the record as a Patriots fan, it's, it's definitely over. Uh, but yeah, until I think someone can actually beat them. I mean, really, when was the last time have I lost uh, a big race or any race um, aside from races that they actually either withdrew from or, or got a time penalty for, right. You know, I think that they lost two world championships. Um, they've competed in over the last like 50,000 years because of those two issues, but have been undefeated since and have won their ARWS and God's own races. So, you know, the only question mark I would have is I know I saw on Facebook somewhere, a reference to some injuries on the team. You know, and, and I think that, that that has to be a question mark. Um, you know, are those injuries going to affect them? Um, you know, uh, some might raise the question about the fact they're racing with a, a new fourth teammate. But honestly, like, I, I think you um, would have a hard time finding anybody better than Simone Mayer to, to fill in um, for Sophie. And uh, I don't see that being really a weakness. Um, I also have thought a lot about... Um, you know, navigation obviously is going to be an unusually important discipline, I think, for expedition races. You know, we tend to see, um, you know, uh, some sometimes at least I should say, but sometimes I think navigation at the expedition level is a little bit more straightforward um, than it is in some shorter events. But um, I think back to Brazil when uh, the teams went into this kind of massive trek, you know, in these kind of the watery inland marshes of the Pantanal and Chris Forn just taking these amazing bearings over this flat featureless land and them just putting on tens of hours on people. Right. Uh, and, uh, and we're one of the few teams, I think three or four teams that actually made it through that race um, to the finish line. And I think the only team that actually finished the race as it was designed, um, you know, so I, I, I think that the nav is going to once again, play a huge factor in Avaya's favor. Um, yeah. I'm not betting against them, but I, as Craig said, I think you've got three teams that I agree um, are in a position to take advantage of mishaps or things like that, and are all very capable of of doing that. Coming back to the to the the course there, Craig, um, you mentioned the fact Monster Trek in the beginning, big big paddle, um, clearly a long paddle on a long body of water. Um, and then, and then we go into a, a, a stage three, a mountain biking stage, uh, 83 kilometers, um, first team time, roughly eight hours, uh, about 1100 meters of gain, 10,000, 1,080 meters of gain. Um, what's your take on that as a, as a stage, you know, we don't have access to the maps and we'll, we'll know ourselves come when the race starts. Does that strike you as a typical stage you'd see in a, in a world championship? Do you think it? If you're if you're a strong mountain biking team, do you wish that you had a longer leg to sort of make some distance up on? What's the balance yeah, there, do you think? Yeah, I had a quick look at the uh, logistics there again just before we came online. And um, it was interesting, the first and third uh, mountain bike stages, they're, they're, with the time they've allowed, the, it's looking at about 10 kilometres per hour, which suggests that it's going to be quite tough and technical, where the middle mountain bike stage, they've got an average of 15 kilometres an hour, so which looks like it's pretty straightforward. So, I mean, those distances are pretty standard, um, you know, sort of anywhere between 50 and 120 kilometres for a mountain bike stage. 
um, you know, sort of anywhere between eight and 12 hours. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty standard. Um, and as I say, once they get off that water, anyone who's too far off the pace really, um, they're going to struggle to make up ground. And, and adding on to what Brent was saying actually about the course, I think it really actually suits the layer down to the ground. I mean, it's it starts with a tough, long trek with probably technical, difficult navigation, um, and then it goes into a long paddle, which, um, you know, they're a strong paddling team as well. So, yeah, barring accidents, injuries, me- uh, mechanical problems, yeah, this course really, to me, looks like it suits a layer right down to the ground, and, and they will be tough to beat unless they make a mistake of some sort. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and that's where I, I've looked at it, where it's to like, if you took a layer out of the equation, um it's quite an interesting race, but it makes it very tricky for those three teams in particular um, and the chase pack, but how they approach the race, do they sort of focus on their own race or do they try and chase a bear and stay with them? And and that's going to be, makes it pretty tricky for them. And, and I think uh, Swedish Armed Forces last year, their strength was they ran their own race, but there was no availer to chase um, and factor into the equation where this year they'll be there. So obviously it plays on your mind. Um, so it would be interesting how they approach that. What do you think, Brent? Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that. And um, I would also just chime in more for, you know, any listeners that maybe have not followed this race before. Um, you know, uh, I already alluded to this, but um, I have never seen navigation issues for top teams and top elite navigators like I've seen at this race, uh, at any expedition race that I've followed, and certainly not with the consistency that it seems to to play out. So, you know, you really can't stress that enough. I've watched, you know, you know, in their regular editions, maybe three or four top teams going at it and, you know, they'll hit this trekking stage. It's usually the trekking stages where, where the wheels come off and you might see a 10 to 15 hour, uh, you know, change right between two teams. Um, and we're talking about those elite teams where normally if they have issues, there might be, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours of a change. Uh, so, you know, that first leg has, has the potential to really undo some teams. Um, I also, you know, was really actually looking also at, um, stage four at, at the second trek, and, you know, it looks relatively unassuming, especially when you compare it to that first one at 35 kilometers, Um, you know, but they're estimating 10 hours for it. Right. Um, you know, so we're talking about three kilometers an hour for the fast teams and, you know, having competed against uh, a number of the truly elite teams on the world scene, even in tough terrain, that's usually kind of on the slower end of what some of them can do, which tells me that might be a trickier leg than it might appear. Um, not a ton of elevation. So I'm thinking another one where we might see some, some tricky navigation, that could really trip people up. And I agree. That jumped out of me. Also, I was surprised at a three and a half kilometers per hour average over the course of 10 hours with only 845 meters of gain. Right. And so, so <laughs> it speaks to that might be a place where a team is going to make up some, 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 uh, some distance, uh, either they're going to extend their lead or they're going to lose part of their lead. Um, I interviewed Jesse Spangler earlier and he talked about how he was in one race. He just ran out of course. He, he was closing in on the leaders and he just, the course got away from him. I think you're spot on that, that, that stage four, that track, especially when they get to that track after the, those first three stages are, are pretty intense. Cause we can't discount the 83 kilometers of mountain biking that comes before it. You may see where teams, when they get to that track, are going to have a hard time when it comes to 
they're deep into the race at that point. Who knows how many days in they're going to be? Things like that. Craig, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And the last trek also, they averaged that kilometers an hour, so which is quite unusual for a third trek. Um, that's actually at that stage of the race quite quick. Um, so unless that's relatively easy and straightforward, um, I think teams might actually be a little bit slower than that. Uh, but I, I see the time estimate for the whole course is only about 84 hours, so that's three and a half days, which means, which is quite a bit shorter than most world championships. So therefore, you know, teams will be able to push a little bit harder than normal, and you're probably only looking at a sleep strategy of two sleeps uh, potentially because the first night on the first track they'll push through. Um, interesting, actually, they they have to drop gear off at about four thirty in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, and get on the bus at five. Um, so teams are going to be up at three o'clock in the morning, probably three thirty, uh, eating you know, doing final preparations and and nerves and bits and pieces and and getting down to the bus. So um, by the time they get into that second night, they'll go through the first night obviously on the track and and you know any problems there um, you know will will cost. But the top teams will have obviously fly through there and and then they'll start the, that kayak on the second night. So I they'll have a the top teams all the teams will have a, a reasonable sleep on on that pedal. And then on the um, third night, they will have a top-up sleep probably only, and, and they'll be pushing those uh, bike legs and, and trek legs pretty hard, I think. And once they get through sort of leg four or five, they'll really get a sniff of the finish line and they'll be pushing pretty hard. And, and ho- hopefully they'll be hoping to go without any more sleep. So, um, yeah, I think probably only a, maybe a two-sleep strategy. So on that note on the sleep strategy, Brent, with a, a 3 o'clock wake-up for the purpose of dropping off their gear, 3 o'clock – gear drop off 12 o'clock race start they race through that first day they're 24 hours awake at three o'clock of the second day of the race if you will then they're 36 hours awake at three o'clock in the afternoon and then they're pushing 40 hours of being awake at their first full night of racing that's a long like i think when you start getting into the high 30s low 40s you're really starting to bump up against the sleep capacity of of any team um What's your, what's your take on how that's going to impact some people, especially when it comes to that monster trek to start the section off? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's again, to, to go back to where I started, you know, the, these top teams generally know how to manage sleep. Right. Um, and they know how to race, uh, with that sleep deprivation. I, I think the beginning of the race, I mean, the, the, to back up a little bit, I, I, I think to me, the, my biggest question looking at this as a racer is, where am I sleeping on that, that first sleep, which as Craig said, is night two, which lines up to be roughly the paddle, you know, it's possible the race starts, I think at noon, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. That's so, correct. You know, if they're, if their time estimates are accurate, you've got your first team potentially coming in right around sunset of night two. Um, and I think for those top teams getting to that through that first stage without sleeping is is not a problem, right. For, for most of them, unless someone's really struggling, of course, and that's possible, but, you know, assuming, you know, some of those teams at least will not have that kind of struggle, they'll get through it. And then the big question is, what does the map look like for this paddle? Right. You know, like not all paddles are created equal. And, uh, you know, if you need to take a proper sleep, um, in the middle of that, that, that paddle, is there a place to actually do it or not? Right. So I think it's some interesting questions about where do you sleep um, for that that first night? Um, And I think the teams that figure that out are going to have a massive advantage. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see an Avaya 
you know, put in a big sleep at that point and actually let people get ahead of them, which they often do, especially early in the race. Um, I think there's a two kilometer trek down to the water, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's right. And I kind of wonder maybe, maybe along the way to the water, you, you, you pitch a tent or you find, find something along the way, if there's anything along the way to sleep in. Um, but I think that'll be interesting. And we, we obviously don't know that, right. You know, if you can get out and paddle for four or five hours and then sleep in the middle of the night, that's probably the ideal, but we just don't know if that's possible. So, yeah. And then I think it lines up right after that. I mean, you kind of figure 13 hours of paddling plus maybe a few hours of sleep for the, the teams that, um, you know, actually like a Navaya who tends to get bigger sleeps, um, you know, that's another, what, half day plus of racing. You're getting yourself into kind of midday, day three. You push through that mountain yeah. bike, and then you're probably looking at sleeping on the, the second trek again. And then I agree with Craig. You get through that trek, and it's going to be hard to, to sleep after that, even if you need to. You're going to have to race, I think. Yeah. I think Swedish Armed Forces uh, raced really smart last year at the World Champs as well. And as I said earlier, they, they, they slept on the big paddle and it really paid dividends for them, um, where a lot of teams pushed through the night and they got to the end of that paddle and they were just smashed and they hadn't slept for two days. And, and then, but Swedish team got there early and well, not, not far behind the other lead teams and, and they just carried straight on while everyone else was zombied and, and, uh, and took time out. So strategy there is going to be key. Get me that water. You see it time and time again, how sleep really is. Sleep feels to be as important as your physical capacity if not more important. You know, we, we see it all the time where teams just, they, they make a tough decision when it comes to sleep and they, and they forsake it and they begin to sift the finish line and all of a sudden the wheels come off the wagon. And as I look at the schematic here, easy is a dangerous word to use when it comes to the event racing world championships. Um, but after such a massive opening to the race, teams may be looking at those, those stage six and seven, the trek, the mountain bike and thinking to themselves, if we just get to that, we'll be okay. Um, and that could backfire for some teams because we all know what happens when you're that late in a race. Um, but I, I do agree that two good sleeps, uh, will probably will be what carry teams through. I do have a question about the schematic as I read it over here. Um, it appears that in the notes for the schematics, it talks about how there's no bike boxes, but instead the bikes are, are locked together. And they go out and it sounds like they come back. They leave the bikes there. They go, they do a section, they come back and get on the bikes again. Anything about that schematic as you look at it, Brent and Craig, that jumps at you as as being unique or different when it comes to how these races are put together? Or does this pretty much feel like a standard world championship schematic? Yeah, you're referring to, is it the end of stage three where that happens, Brian? And then it looks like maybe the, the trek is a loop. Back yes. to the point. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most races tend to be point to point for each stage. I'm sure there's a good reason for it. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, Ertzi and his crew are obviously some of the most experienced seasoned racers and, and know how to put together a great race. And year in, year out, this is like one of the very few, if, if, yeah, it's one of the very few races um, kind of in tropical areas that I have entertained racing in myself because I don't like racing in the heat generally. Um, you know, I, I think the big surprises we've already talked about is just um, you've got two kind of big opening legs and then everything else by ARWS standards is feels shorter to me. I mean, some of the bikes are on the longer side, but there's there's usually, I would say, like a, a, a bigger bike 
somewhere, um, you know, something that not so much distance wise, but, you know, that's going to keep people out for, you know, longer than I think the nine and a half hours, which is the the slowest of the bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that strikes me as a little unusual, but, you know, I, I as a race director myself, like we have a, a philosophy of you design a course um, based off what you have to work with. And I assume they are doing that here as well. So. Yeah, definitely. I, I think so. And the, actually the last bike lead, I don't think you can say once someone's on that last bike lead that it's all over because there, it is what 108 kilometers or something. It's mm-hmm. got 10 checkpoints. You know, it has an average speed of only 10 kilometers an hour, 1800 meters. So there is still a little bit in that last bike lead. So if things are tight, it will be an interesting finish, I think. Um, if you know someone's got a couple of hours up their sleeve, then it'll probably be a little bit more straightforward. But navigation, once again, you know, in, in a lot of these uh, South American countries, there's tracks and trails going all over the show, and they could be into the third night by then. Tiredness, fatigue, and such things can take a toll. So it could be quite an interesting finish still, I think, if teams are close, and um, yeah, it's possible, definitely. It feels like for a race that's around 84 hours, it sounds like it's a highly technical, challenging race along the way. And so we, no one should fall into the trap of thinking that a shorter race is necessarily an easier race, right? Shorter races sometimes are really pounded with, with, with technical capacity. Brent, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, two other things I I would point out. One is, um, you know, as we've, we've all talked about navigation is so crucial here. You don't also tend to see a hundred or 110 or however many checkpoints they have in an ARWS uh, or an ARWC race or most ARWS events, right? You know, this is a, a race after my own heart and how we like to do it at Rootstock, um, you know, and so it, it, that, that stands out, right? There, I think there's two legs where there's maybe three where there's like five or fewer checkpoints, you know, oftentimes you'll see stages where, you only have two or three checkpoints on most stages of an event. So that stands out as well. And, um, you know, I'd also just, you know, point out that checkpoints, right, really can slow people down. And I, I don't expect this to be an issue for top teams, but when you're talking about a hundred or so checkpoints, you know, it's it's not um, unheard of to spend a couple minutes at every checkpoint, just gathering yourself and figuring out where you're going to go next. And, you know, the Avayas will have no problem just punching and moving on and not really stopping for it. But for a lot of the less experienced teams, you know, you start doing the math, you, you could easily spend five or six hours just punching and hanging out at checkpoints as you move through the course, right? So that's gonna, I think that's gonna be something to, you know, pay attention to. Again, not for the podium contenders, but something to look at. And definitely with with 50 plus teams on the course and a wide variety of experience on the course, we're going to see all of that, right? We're going to see people who are going to take big bites of the course and folks who are going to begin to make decisions regarding to what they do or do not get. Um, I also, Brian, I actually was going to say, you know, the when you add up all the fast times here, yeah, you come out to about 85 hours. But typically, you know, when race directors put together schematics like this, that does not include um, time for TAs and it doesn't include time for sleep. So, you know, if you take your top team, say they they actually hit these time estimates, throw in a couple hours, maybe, a, you know, I mean, it's really it probably is more than a couple hours, but, you know, maybe three to four hours for the top teams to for all of their TAs together. And that's if they're really, really sharp the whole time. And then, you know, you add in anywhere from maybe four to six hours of sleep. And all of a sudden you're looking at a finish time that's probably more like 95 hours, maybe even a bit longer. And it would not surprise me having watched this race uh, play out um, before, 
if we actually see the, uh, you know, the, the time estimates going by the wayside a little bit, even for the, the top teams, you know, and, and you might end up with some sections like that first stage might be, what is it? Instead of 32 hours might be like 36. Right. right. Um, so, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if we end up with a hundred hour winning time or even a little bit longer for, for this event. Greg, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think certainly the very top teams. Um, um, for anyone that so, Craig, you're you're finally the internet caught up with us. We're quickly stretch out to. Hold on, there, uh, we're, we're we're 34 minutes in. The internet finally caught up with us. Start that section again. It, there, it appears that when you when you don't speak for a while, it, it kind of goes to sleep on your side. So when you start talking, okay. it takes a second to catch up. So Brent was just okay. talking about possibly a hundred hour race. What do you think? I think for the very top teams, it will probably still be under 90 hours, uh, but I'm talking to probably just top one, two, maybe three teams. Uh, but once you get past that, you know, teams will, he's Brent's right. You know, they'll be into the third night, you're talking another sleep, things very quickly get stretched out and, for the chase pack and such things, yeah, they could easily be another 12 hours behind that and, and yeah, looking at 100 hours plus. So, um, yeah, and it, it gets to a stage too, I think, for some of those teams that they know they're, they're now just battling for fourth or fifth or sixth place and, and yeah, the, the pressure goes off and the pace goes down a little bit as well. So then and they might have an hour up their sleeve ahead of the other teams. So, gotcha. so yeah, I, I would pick probably under 90 hours, but... But for majority of teams, yeah, 90 plus 100. We haven't talked a whole lot about the weather because um, I think to talk about the weather sometimes is is a, it's a fool's errand, right? Because the weather is going to be the weather no matter what. It is South America. It, it is, a, is a, a very hot, humid. Um, a lot of a, a lot of factors come in there. In your experience, Craig, having covered the races before in Paraguay, has the weather been a factor or is it pretty much just understood it's going to be humid, it's going to be hot, and it's going to be jungle and tropicky? Yeah, good point. I hadn't really thought about it too much. Um, but, yeah, those things that you just mentioned, heat, humidity, rain can be a big factor. Um, if it's wet, then the roads and the tracks turn to bog and, and mud and can really make a big difference. Um yeah, once again, for the top teams, it just slows them down a little bit and they still push through it. But for the teams further back, yeah, it becomes a bit of a slugfest as well. So, yeah, it will be a factor. But I think most teams will be pretty used to it and they'll, they'll be um, a little bit more on top of it than I am at the moment of, you know, what to expect and be looking at the forecast pretty close. So they'll they'll factor that in. If there's rain going, going to be rain on the second day or the first night or something rather than they expect the mountain bike rides to be a little bit slower. But other than that, comes and, and roll with it very good so we're about 37 minutes right now into our recording here um i i feel like we've well covered it what i'd like to do if possible men is to kind of bring the band back together uh either during the race or towards the end of the race to see how right we were and how wrong we were um but before we do that we should do what every great analysis team does we should kind of take a guess at who we think is going to be the podium not the winners, the podium. So one, two, and three. I'm putting you guys on the spot. Who do you think we're all said and done? Who do you think we're looking at? 
<laughs> and I'm writing it down. So after we're going to refer back to it for our post-race pod. I, I can't imagine that we're, any of us are going to pick against Avaya to be on the top unless we are just doing it for the sake of, uh, for fun. Right. And, uh, you know, I, as much as I would love to pick somebody else just for the sake of picking someone else. And, and I don't say that out of any disrespect for Avaya, they are incredible. They're incredible people from everything I've seen from afar. I have absolutely no reason to root against them. Um, but uh, yeah, it'd be fun to, to, to root for, you know, root for someone else or pick someone, but I'm not going to do it. So I go Avaya number one. Okay. And about your two and three. Um, I have a really hard time picking against Swedish Armed Forces. Uh, I I personally feel like they are the most complete team out there right now, maybe by a very small amount. Um, when you take Avaya out of the mix, I think they can navigate. I think they've got uh, amazing experience. I think they've got great team chemistry. You know, they're a team that tends to 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 race as a core group rather than you know racing around with different people. Um, they've got great navigation. They've got great speed. Um, you know, and, and great seemingly skill sets at, at just about everything that they do. So I'd probably put them slightly ahead of. Um, I vacillate between Estonia and Brazil. I mean, we're, we're talking about the teams we talked about. It's really hard for me to, to think that it'll be someone other than these four barring an issue. Um, you know, I want to pick the Brazilian team. I think they've been really, uh, fun to watch. It's been a, a great pairing watching Nick Gracie race with, um, you know, the, the Brazilians over the last number of years. And I think that, you know, if there's a race for them to do it, it's probably this one. Um, I think Estonia has got such drive to win this race and have been trying to do it for a few years here. So I'm, I'm hard pressed to pick against them and their navigation. I think their navigation is maybe second only to Avaya. So I'm, I'm going to go Estonia third. Very nice. Craig, what do you think? What's your podium? Yeah, definitely Avaya first. I mean, they've, they're still so dominant, even at God's own where there's pretty competitive field and they've just demolished it. So they're, they're fit, they're ready to race. And the minute they stand on that start line, they've only got one focus, and that's to finish that course as fast as they can, which will be just faster than everyone else. So I have no doubt, barring accidents and or a major mistake, um, which I don't see happening um, yet, for sure. Um, but I, I'll go with Estonia, I think. I think maybe the the terrain might play into their hands a little bit just with um, being quite flat in places. So, therefore, you know, a little bit more compass-bearing type navigation uh, may play into their hands. And I would love to pick Brazil also for third, but I will go for SAF because even though Brazil won in Panama and beat Estonia, um, Estonia were coming out of the middle of winter. Uh, I think for this race, they will be a lot sharper. They'll be ready to race. They'll be in top form after summer. And so, therefore, yeah, I mean, either of those teams slip up, Brazil will take no no trouble at all. And it will be a very good race for that podium um, placings for sure. I will. And uh... then if you want to pause there, I, I would like to cover some of the other teams um, in the chase pack. Sure. Yeah. Let me do this. I'm going to, I'm going to, Jump in with my three guesses on who we think is going to do it, and then we'll we'll, we'll talk about the rest of the chase pack because we have some American teams we want to rank some highlights too, as well. Um, 
I'm aboard with Avaya uh, for two reasons. One is they're Avaya, and second one, I wanted to get Nathan on the show. And so if I if I say he's going to win, that might get him on the show. Um, I'm going to go with with Saf as number two, um, and I am going to take a little bit of a of a, a flyer here. I had a chance to to see them race in Ecuador, Life Adventure Imtech. I know that they're uh, they're they're a very very strong team. I know they're a strong South America team. They know that terrain. They know that very very well. I think I might be a bit of a fool's errand there, but I'm definitely going to go with. Um, I think I'm putting them at number three. I think that might be a bad guess. I think they might be number uh, a bit further down the pike, but in honor of seeing them race, see how they do. That's what I'm going to go with there. So definitely Life Adventure Imtech, which I would lose my shirt on, I think, if we were in Vegas right now, making that bet. Um, now, not to pay attention only to to those top teams, we do have 53 other uh, other teams, uh, 51 other teams that are out there who are going to be racing. Uh, a couple of Ben teams are down there. We have Team Visibility from America. Um, a bit of a chase pack. Craig, tell me, chase pack, who are you thinking? What do you think? We have Team Eastwind, as a matter of fact. Who doesn't love Eastwind, right? Everyone's rooting for yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. The... Yeah, Chase Pack's always interesting. A um, couple of teams that have impressed me the last few years. Um, just on uh, Life Adventure, um, Brian, I've sort of given them big plugs the last couple of world champs and because they are so dominant at home and they are such a strong team, but they've, they've disappointed me the last couple of world champs. So I think they'll be a little bit further down. So don't put your money on it, mate. But um, Jim City... Uh, seem to be improving with every race. Uh, Black Hills Czech, from Czech Republic, they are a really good team and they're always pushing top five. Um, so they'll be right up there. Probably my dark horse pick actually is uh, Blizzard from Russia. Um, they were right at front last year in Spain and had great speed, raced really well. They made some sort of mistake on the uh, river leg at CP17 or saying it looked like they must have forgotten some sort of compulsory gear, had to go back for it, lost a couple of hours. I remember that. Over. So, um, so, yeah, so that would be my dark horse, I think. And then I think Ben Canada um, have proved also that they, um, they've got the goods. Alex and is it Kareem? Um, mm-hmm. Are very, very talented. And yeah, I've been impressed whenever they race. And, and I think that they've got potential to go top five um, for sure. So that, that's a really good little tight um, chase pack. South American teams, yeah, I'd like to see them in there. Um, they'll be just outside top 10, I think. And um, but Eastwind, you know, they had a really good race at um, Oregon and the, the mantle has been passed down from father to son, from Masato down to Yoki. So it be fascinating to see how they go. And they had a great race at Oregon. So I think they were definitely top 10 and could push top five as well. So that, that chase pack is going to be really interesting. But I think those top four teams will be, there will be daylight, a little bit of a gap in there. Brett, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Craig covered a lot of the teams there. Um, you know, I'll, I'll talk about a couple others um, that I would watch, but um, also give a, 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 a plug for the Canadian Ben team. Um, I like that team a lot. You know, I've raced against uh, all of them with some frequency. Um, I doubt that the international race scene is is as familiar, perhaps, with Jean-Yves, but he's an, a, an exceptional athlete um, and is uh, often racing on the very top, top Canadian teams. Um, 
And uh, frankly, sometimes on teams that are, are are competing against and beating Alex's team. So Jean Eve is, is a great uh, racer there. And, and James Gallopo is, uh, you know, a workhorse, you know, very strong, mm-hmm. great guy and, and a great racer and tons of big experience. So, yeah, I like that Canadian team quite a bit to, to be in the mix, to, you know, be up, up high. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious to watch the other Estonian team. I'm not going to try to pronounce the first part of their name, but um, Honey Honey Power. Um, you know, they had a, a a really nice race in South Africa. They're a new team, as far as I know. This might be their first year racing expedition races, but um, they seem to to actually, you know, be putting it together very quickly. Um, it's really unusual to see a newer team, you know, come into a world championship and be able to kind of meet the moment. Um, so I, I wouldn't, you know, necessarily put any money on that, but I'm curious to see how they do. Um, I'm also really interested in the Merrill Songlines team. Um, you know, I think there's, if I'm not mistaken, I think three of the four are, are relatively young uh, and also, you know, newer to um, to the expedition scene, but they've got one of the most uh, experienced racers in South Africa and John Collins kind of captaining them. And I think that that's going to be a team that, that could really mix it up. Um I would also um, highlight um, from the good old USA, Quest AR Bend Racing. Um, you know, I think people know Chelsea Magnus and um, Dan, um, and they are obviously two of, if not, you know, like the two kind of, you know, strongest bend racers right now. Um, no offense to anyone else on the team, but I think like that that's a great duo right there. I don't think people know Dusty and Emily and having competed against those two, Dusty is probably one of the like biggest hidden gems in our sport. I would, I would say anywhere. Um, and, you know, I, I don't really know if he and Emily and some of the other quest racers have ambitions to, you know, really kind of, um, you know, go all in on the sport. Um, but they're exceptional athletes. Dusty is an unbelievable navigator. Uh, and I think that they could really mix things up when you put kind of their um, abilities together with the experience that Chelsea and Daniel bring to the team. So I, I would watch them closely. Um, I agree. I, I hate to say it. I'm just I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to to pick any of the other South American teams right now outside of Brazil Multisport. Um, I think Ecuadorian teams have an amazing track record of cleaning up in the mountains, especially at home. Um, but not often performing as well, especially in the world championship. So um, I'm probably not going to go there, though there's a few teams to watch. Ferris is another Ecuadorian team to to watch. The Euro, the team from Uruguay interests me a little bit because they have um, uh, some experience at, at Paraguay. They've done quite well. I think they might have finished on the podium one year, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, So if there was one kind of dark horse South American team I'm watching, it, it's probably that team. Um, beyond that, I mean, I think there's, there's a couple of great, um, you know, groups of Swedish athletes, um, you know, and they're always strong. So I could definitely see some of them mixing it up up top as well. Um, beyond that, it would be, uh, you know, I, I think it would be a dark horse surprise from South America. I, I think, you know, we, we, we talked a lot about the 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 the, uh, the top teams that are there and top teams that aren't there, right? And so I think it's kind of clear that we're we have a strong sense of who we think will be top four, top five. What I think really jumps out here, hearing both of you talk about the teams, is the fascinating part of the race is going to be five through fifteen, 
mm-hmm. right? Who are those teams that really kind of come along? Where's an East wind going to fall? Where's it? Where's an Estonia going to fall? And so I would encourage the people who are going to follow the race is don't get just focused on the podium that mm-hmm. you're, you may be seeing a lot of young and up and coming teams that are going to make a statement during this, this world championship who we might see coming along. Is it a changing of the guard? I don't know if I would go that, that strong. Um, this isn't the U.S. Open. We saw this year with everybody winning who wasn't um, winning before. But I, I do think it's one of these things where we're going to get a sense of uh, the future of the race and who really kind of shows up. So I think you're spot on about that. Um, so I think I think it's it's going to be a great race. It's going to shape up, right? I mean, just telling everybody out there, look past that, those top four or five teams and pay attention to the to the middle of the pack because you're going to see some really, really strong um, performances out there. And of course, you know, Brent, we are, are obligated as Americans to call out team visibility racing, right? We have uh, uh, Andre Anderson is down there with Chip Dodd and uh, and um, down there with Luis and, and all the teammates are down there and they're getting ready to race and they're going to have a great experience. I know that they've, uh, they've, they've picked up a, a newer teammate as I look at the list here, and I, her name always escapes me when the time comes to say it, is uh, Amanda Rankin is out there, and she's a she's a strong racer herself, and she's done a lot of the big races. So we're rooting for our fellow Americans down there, um, and they've raced all over the world recently. So maybe all the experience will come together for them, and they'll have a, a solid performance and be proud of their uh, their overall results. Did I leave anything out? Anything that we should talk about? We missed, Craig. What do you think? Yeah, I would. Definitely agree with uh, Brent um, with his picks on the other top teams. The yeah, I think Ben Racing teams will do very well, and definitely both top ten potential. The other one is that you did briefly touch on there the Swedish teams, um, Pioneer, Greener, and Suico. Um, they, I, I can see Sweden having three or four in the top ten again. Um, they are a strong nation and, and they are good teams. So, yeah, I, I missed them out when I uh, were I was running through the teams there before. So those, all three of those teams are potential top ten. Um, so as you say, that fifth the fifteenth um, could be fascinating racing, and that that would be where the real racing is happening, um, and will be quite interesting. So, um, and just one other point that uh, of interest, I guess that's quite fascinating is um, Simone's partner Marcel won the World Champs uh, back in two thousand and five with Nathan at his first World Champs that he won. So that would be quite interesting if Simone can um, match Marcel and get a world title under a belt and, and then they can compare notes, I guess. But <laughs> in fact that Nathan's doing it with both of them um, is quite a fascinating uh, little angle on it as well. So nice little side topic there. That's, that's a, great. That, that's some really good cocktail trivia there. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good storyline right there. Holy cow. See how that shakes out. Well, yeah. like, like we say, it's, it's, it's easier to be an analyst, hard to be a racer. Um, let's see how the, how the teams do for the listeners out there. Uh, what we're going to do, as I've mentioned earlier, we're going to let the race begin and start. And we're going to try to, if I can get Craig and Brent and our, our, our trans world internet connections, keep holding up. We'll do a little post-race analysis and we'll see how right we were, we, how right we were and how wrong we were. Um, gentlemen, any final closing thoughts before we say, uh, goodbye for now. Yeah, I mean, I think the only final thing that came to my mind here at the end, listening to your kind of uh, wrap up from a statement or two ago, Brian, is just that uh, usually you have five, six, seven, sometimes eight to 10 teams that are all absolutely teams to watch for the podium. And I think we've really got like three or four 
Um, and I think one of the exciting things about that is while it may not be quite the same type of excitement that we normally have, it takes one slip up and, and you have the door open for teams that normally are not necessarily in the mix for, uh, for that podium. Um, and so, uh, it's always fun to see all the best teams come together, but sometimes it's fun seeing, you know, some of those other, uh, chase teams really having an actual chance to get in there. It would probably take a, a slip up or a team not finishing, which we don't wish for that. Uh, but I'm excited to, to see if any of these other teams actually, uh, are in the running for the podium. Craig, what do you think? Yeah, once again, I agree with Brent about the the depth of the field. Um, but I think the key and absolute critical part of this race for me is going to be the first night and the first track um, for all of the teams, you know, right from the front, right to the back, and getting through that first track cleanly and quickly. And the teams that can do that um, will go on and have a pretty good race, I think, because once you get on that, River, I presume it's pretty straightforward, paddle down the river, even though it's 100 kilometres. Um, and then it's bike and hike, um, so to the finish. And there will be obviously challenges in there, but certainly for the teams that want to be podium or top five, top ten, that first night is going to be absolutely critical. And getting through that first trek, getting on the water ahead of the other teams, and then, yeah, there will still be some jostling of positions with strong paddlers, uh, and Ben Racing definitely um, come into that category. The um, but outside of that, yeah, it's, it's it won't be a procession by any means, but and there will still be a lot of technical navigation, I'm sure. And one slip up will be a massive in, in this race, I think. And losing an hour or two, and you, your race will be over, I think. So it will be the teams that can execute and navigate cleanly and quickly and efficiently that will will prosper, I think, definitely. And that's part of the beauty of adventure racing is is the fact that it's a we're looking at a. 80 hour, 90 hour, 100 hour race, but really the first third of the race is going to decide how the race goes for everybody else. It's tough to make up time down the road, right? So here's best of luck to everybody. We want to wish yeah. best of luck to all of our, our racers that are out there. You know, it takes uh, time and capital and travel and away from home and work and job to go and do this. We want to thank all the racers for being there and want to thank Ertzi and his team for putting together a, what's going to be a great course. Uh, one of our listeners to to check back with us um, soon after the race ends. We're going to do a little post-race analysis and we'll see who's on top of that podium. Will it be Avaya? We all think so, but uh, we've been wrong in the past. We've been right in the past. We'll see what happens. Brent and Craig, thank you very much for joining us. Be safe. And as always, we appreciate your time on the Dark Zone. So thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. And uh, Craig, it was great no sharing, uh, sharing the Zoom room with you. No worries, nice to meet you and, and yeah, a lot of fun and we'll watch with interest 